if you were with us last week and you put seeds in those little pots in, in the, I don't know what it's called, lattice? Sounds good. The thing Tim and Andrew made. Um, we, and Tim and Andrew, not we, I had nothing to do with it. It's actually installed on the side of the uh, steps here. So on your way out, and I looked there, the, I was here on Wednesday and I looked and there wasn't anything growing. I was here Friday and there wasn't anything popping through. And then this morning, Tim told me to go take a look. Some of those seeds of hope are actually starting to sprout. So if you remember which one you planted in, uh, good, good job. Uh, there's, a, there's a verse in this last passage that Anna read for us that's a little bit troubling. Uh, did you catch it? If you forgive people's sins, they'll be forgiven. And if you don't forgive people's sins, they won't be forgiven. That's quite a job, right? So here you have the disciples. The resurrection happened last week, or like for them, that day. And they're standing there wondering what to do in the upper room. The door's locked. And now they have this big job that they have to do, the job that they didn't apply for. And Jesus comes to them and says, you're going to forgive people's sins. And if you don't, their sins won't be forgiven. It reminds me of a man who, of a story of a guy who got a job, but the job that he applied for wasn't the job he got. He applied for like a mid-level position. He ended up getting the whole manager position of that whole department. And so now, instead of being someone who takes orders, he's now someone who is in control of the budget. He's in control of managing everybody, hiring and firing. It's a job way bigger than he expected. And he stands in front of the board, and then the chairperson says, this is the job you're hired for. And this guy goes, I can't possibly do that. There's no way I can do it. And the chairman looks at, them, looks at him and says, yeah, but we think you can. And so we're going to call you to do something bigger than you ever expected yourself able to do. We believe that you're the right person for this job. And we're going to change some things around so that you're able to do this job. And this guy goes, there's still no way I can do it. And the chairperson says, don't worry. We'll be with you the entire time. This is the type of picture that I see happening in the upper room that day. The disciples aren't really sure that Jesus has risen from the dead. Resurrection, Easter, it was last week. They're just now getting word from Mary, Peter, and John that, this, that Jesus is no longer in his tomb. And they're not really sure what to do now. But what they get from this is a brand new calling, a new job to do, something they didn't even apply for, and frankly, something that they probably didn't think they were ready to do. But what we find in this passage is that the resurrection just doesn't happen one day of the week, and then we all look around and say, cool, now what? This resurrection brings us, this Easter Sunday, brings us forward in life and gives us a new calling. It gives us a new job to do. And for some of us, it's a job that we're not really sure that we ever applied for, but it's a job that we were born to do. And in it, in this passage, we'll back up a little bit and we'll see that Jesus equips his disciples in three different ways to do the job that they're not qualified to do. So we're going to look at this passage a little closer. If you have your Bibles, it'll be on the screen. Drake's firing up the, the projector again. Uh, I'm going to try and keep up with him. 
Uh, but the first thing we see is that Jesus says, this is your job now. He shows up. The first thing we see is that they, Jesus gives them something that we're all longing for, especially in the situation that they're in, and it's peace. The disciples were hiding. The door was locked. And Jesus comes to them and says, on the evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together, the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders. Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. They're hiding from the Jews. They, the Jews had come. They'd arrested Jesus. They thought that they were next. They thought they were going to be arrested. They thought they were going to hang on a cross. They thought they were going to be killed. And so they're hiding in the upper room with the door locked. No one can get in. No one can get out unless you unlock the door. And then, next thing you see is Jesus comes and stands in their midst. That's weird, right? The door's locked. And Jesus walks right in. We don't know how he got in. We don't know if he walked through the door. There's a lot of questions that we see. All we know is that Jesus comes in and he says, peace. Yeah, if I'm in the room, I look at Jesus and go, you know what would be better and give me more peace? If you knocked. This is, this is weird. You just show up like this as a ghost in the middle of the room. Next time knock and I'll have some peace. Jesus tells them peace because they're doing something probably in that room. I like to imagine what's going on in their minds. There's probably a lot of regret. Things went down the other Friday for them a couple days ago, and they're not too happy with. Judas has betrayed them. Jesus is dead for all they know. They don't know if they can believe what Mary, Peter, and John say. They, they regret running away. Some of them fell asleep when Jesus was praying. Jesus says, stay awake with me a little while longer. He comes back in the garden, and they're zonked out. They missed it. They messed up. They have a lot of regret, and they're afraid. They're probably afraid of Jesus as well. They failed him, and they're afraid he's going to be a little bit upset. And the first thing that Jesus says to them is, peace, peace be with you. In other words, Jesus, he's not mad at them. He doesn't come in and say, hey, look, guys, you screwed up, and here's what I'm going to do with you. You all have to do this many laps or however many push-ups or whatever they did for punishment. He goes, no, 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 peace. I'm on your side. I'm bringing you good things. Relax. It's going to be okay. The word peace there is the same word that Jesus used for peace a few chapters earlier. In the face of trouble, Jesus says this in John chapter 14. My peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I do not give you as the world gives. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Don't be afraid. It's a peace that comes in the face of trouble. Jesus doesn't say that, you're not, that everything's going to be fine, disciples. He doesn't say that they're not going to get in trouble. They're never going to be arrested. He says, in the face of your fears, the people you're deadbolting the doors from, you can have peace. You can be calm in the face of all of them. And then after this, he says this. Uh, it, it really wasn't what the words that gave peace. He shows them what they can have peace and why they can have peace. In verse 20, after he said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. 
It wasn't his words that calmed them down. What gave them peace was the actual physical body of Jesus. It probably reassured them to some point. Jesus actually did what he said he was going to do. He had been talking for three years now that he was going to die and he was going to rise again. And Jesus actually fulfilled it. And so when they see them, when they see Jesus there, they see a body which is the source of peace. Jesus shows them his scars, shows them his hands, shows them the side, and it's reassuring to them for a few reasons. One, they're not crazy. They didn't throw away three years of their life following this crazy rabbi. Many people had come in in that time and said, I'm Messiah. I'm going to free everybody. And every single one of them failed. They're following this Jesus guy. He says the same things. And what happens to him? He doesn't fail. And so they probably are reassured, we have our Messiah that's one way. And the other thing that they're, they're comforted by is that death no longer has a hold on them. Jesus has conquered it. He was raised from the dead. They're not crazy for believing that either. In reality, Jesus was fulfilling the very things that he promised them just two days earlier. If you rewind in John chapter 16, Jesus is telling them this is what's going to happen. In verse 16 of chapter 16, in a little while... You'll see me no more. And then after a little while, you'll see me. And the disciples didn't understand that because it's a riddle. and They weren't really tracking with Jesus anyways. And so Jesus continues in verse 20. Very truly I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. And he continues. So with you, now is your time of grief, but I'll see you again and you will rejoice, and no one will be able to take that joy away from you. In verse 33, I have told you these things so that you may have peace in a world where you have trouble, but you can take heart, for I have overcome the world. Jesus is seeing his disciples, the 11 that are left in that room, and they're scared to death of what's going to happen. They're scared to death of what's happened. And he comes to them and shows them himself, the true source of peace, which is something that Jesus has been trying to do now since the beginning of John, beginning of this gospel. You want peace, it's only found here. It's not found in anywhere else. It's found here in his hands and in his side. He offers them truth. Truth that fixes our anxiety. He says, here's the truth. I've risen from the dead. Now you can take some action. Look and see that I'm actually here. Truth and action. I have a doctor who is very thorough. And when he's thorough, he looks at my family history and pretends that I have everything my dad and my mom have, even though I don't, which is great for someone with anxiety. <laughs> and, and, but it's, he's a good doctor. And he tests me for everything. And he has this saying that he says every time I go in, he says there's two cures for anxiety, truth and action. He's thinking of it from the medical side of the view. Whereas if you want the truth of what you have, don't go to WebMD. You'll always end up with something weird. <laughs> he says you want the truth, so we're going to find out what is true about you. And then we're going to take action if anything of that happens. 
and that'll cure anxiety. And from a medical standpoint, it makes total sense. Find out what you're dealing with and make the action. That will cure that anxiety. It works when he says that to me. Jesus is saying pretty much the same thing here. You want truth? You want, you want, you want peace? It's found only in him. You want action? Take a look at where he's been. He actually did what he said he was going to do. So Jesus is calling his disciples to step out in faith. The resurrection happened. Everything's going to be different now. You're going, you have a job to do. You're not qualified for this job. But don't worry. There's peace. The peace is found in Christ. And the peace is found in his wounds that he overcame death. The next thing we see that Jesus offers them is he offers them this invitation to unite with him in what he's doing. First we have peace, and then we, we can unite, unite with him. Look what he says in verse 21. Again, Jesus said to them, peace be with you. So they didn't get it the first time. He's trying to calm them down. Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. If the first peace was to settle the question of what's going to happen to us. The second piece is to settle that age-old question of what do we do now? Have you ever had something that's momentous, something huge happen to your life, and then after it's over with, you're sitting in the room and you're thinking, okay, now what? What do we do? This thing just happened and we should all be different, but everybody else is going on their own life and it doesn't feel any different. Welcome back. Uh, but it doesn't feel any different. When Carrie and I got engaged, it was uh, a beautiful sunny day. Uh, we know what the sun looks like. We saw it on Friday. It was a beautiful sunny day in warm California, Huntington Beach on the pier. Uh, that was a special place for us. We really wanted the lifeguard stand, but the lifeguard wouldn't let us sit there. And so we went on the pier, and we sat there, and we were watching uh, just the waves, the surfers that were out, and we were just having a good time. Carrie had no idea that I had even purchased a ring. In fact, it was a source of contention between us. She thought that I didn't have it. The truth was, it was in my bathroom drawer the entire time, something where, some place where she would never look. And so she thought that I was never going to give it to her. And that day was a fun day. You should ask her more about it. I screw up the story, and, and it gets worse for me. But... That night, we're on the beach. She's not expecting this to happen. And I, take the, I was taking pictures. I had a camera. And, and I reach back into my bag, and I pull out the ring. And she said yes, in case you're wondering. And I give her the ring, and we do our thing. We're happy. And, and then we get back into the car. And about 15 minutes goes by, and we look at each other like, now what? Uh, we, she was... 28, I was 30. Uh, we had lived our lives and, and on our own, and we were fine. We were happy. And I think it finally hit us. This was a huge deal. And everything now is going to change, but we don't feel much different. Now what's going to happen? Well, we have to plan a wedding. We know that. But who do we call? What do we do? How does this go about it? Have you ever had one of those things? So the disciples... This huge thing in the cosmic universe, bigger than an engagement, happens. Everything is new. They hear about a tear in the veil in the Holy of Holies. Jesus is standing there in their midst, and the question comes up, now what? Great, Jesus is back. 
Let's have dessert because he had to leave early for dinner the night before. Let's, let's do something else. Let's go grab coffee. Something, something has to happen. And Jesus gives them exactly what to do. Just as the Father sent me, I'm sending you. How did Jesus get sent by the Father? In John, this is one of the most famous verses in Scripture. Jesus had a job to do. And in John 3.16, it says, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son so that every individual who's simply trusting in him would not self-destruct but have eternal and lasting life. That's how Jesus was sent. God sent him to the earth to tell everybody that they didn't have to live this way, that there's a better life, and to get them to return to their primary calling of being made in God's image, that you may have life, that you may have life after death, that death no longer has it. This was Jesus' mission. And Jesus is saying, now that's what I got sent to do. You get sent to do the same thing. Tell people about what I just did. So in a sense, you, Jesus is saying, you do what I do. You unite with me in my cause. You go out and tell people. If the disciples were sent just as Jesus was sent, can we rephrase that to say, God so loved the world that he also sent Christians out into the world so that every single individual would simply trust in the one the Christians were talking about, Jesus, and they would not be destroyed, but they would have eternal and lasting life. His job description becomes our job description. Jesus is saying, I'm sending you just as I was sent. It's a big job. We have something to do. But then something interesting happens. In the very next verse, and you can see the disciples in your mind's eye in the room going, what is this? Why? What do you mean? We're going, how are we going to do this? In the very next verse, Jesus says to them, or John tells us in 22, and with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. This is where it gets real interesting in John's gospel. For the previous 20 chapters, John has been redoing something in our minds. In the books, he's trying to point us to something new. He's trying to point us to the new creation that comes in through Christ. And the very opening phrases of the book of John is the words, In the beginning, and he follows, was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. And throughout John's gospel, we see these little day markers. And it was this day, and it was this day, and it was this day. If you rewind and go all the way back to the beginning of Genesis, what is the very first word you see? In the beginning, John is rewriting Genesis here for us. There is a new creation coming in John's mind, and he's trying to get us to see this. There is something new happening. In Genesis 2, 7, what happens? Man, our humankind is created, and God breathes into them the breath of life, the spirit. The very exact words are used here as were used back then. John is telling us in this passage that there is a new creation happening 
you have been made new. You now have a job to do, and you have been recreated with a brand new image of God on your heart. John is recreating something for us all. It starts in John 1. And then the biggest part of all this happened just previously in John. Day 6 happens in Genesis, and we know what happens on day 6. The fall happens. The last time we see God in a garden in in Genesis is when he's talking to Adam and Eve saying, there is sin here now and I can't have you in the garden anymore. And he puts them outside the garden. In John chapter 20, one of the very first things when Jesus is seen after his resurrection is by another woman in a garden. And she calls Jesus a gardener something that people say God was back in Genesis. So the story in Genesis goes awry, and God kicks them out. It's God in a garden with the woman. John is rewriting that entire story, and he says it begins with Jesus, God, in a garden with a woman. But this time the conversation's different. This time they're made new. And she goes back and tells everybody what's happening. John is recreating for us creation. Because of the resurrection, because of the cross, we are made new again. We don't have to live in a garden held out by shame. We're made new. We're breathed on a fresh dose of life given by the Holy Spirit And we are empowered to do the same thing that Jesus did. To tell everyone that there is a relationship between God and man and that you can be forgiven from sins and return to what you were originally created for. Are we tracking? That's a big job, right? It's a big job description. You understand why I kind of see it like that man in the boardroom looking at this job, thinking, there's no way I can do this. Now they have been given that job, and they're thinking, there's no way I can do this. And Jesus says, yes, you can, because I'm giving you something that's going to go with you. It's the same spirit that was promised them back before, this comforter, this guider, this convictor, this corrector, this Holy Spirit as an advocate was coming with them. It's going to inhabit them. It's going to indwell in them. It's going to gift them. It's going to guide them. It's going to take them out. And then the entire book of Acts is showing us how that Holy Spirit guided each and every single one of them. And that same Holy Spirit that we read about here is the same Holy Spirit that is breathed into you when you say, I believe and I trust in Jesus. It's that Holy Spirit that gives us the peace that we've all been wanting. It's that same Holy Spirit that gifts you to live into this calling that God, that Christ is calling you to do, to live like Him, to be representatives of Him, which is our new calling that Christ gives us. He says this, he says there's a renewed calling. We're created in the image of God. There's this new calling, and this is where Jesus gets into it. And if you forgive sins... They'll be forgiven. This is our new job. There's something with the forgiveness of sins that we have to look at. Our first job 
in Genesis, the first job that we were given was to be made in the image of God, which has a whole sorts of different meanings. But one of the meanings that we get to when made in the image of God was that when creation looks at humankind, both male and female, they're made in the image of God so they would see what? God. They would see what God looks like. They would point, it would point back to, if, that's, if you're made in his image, if you're made in God's image, this must mean what God looks like. There's another word for that. Priests. We were called to be priests. A priest is simply a representative of what God is doing in that area. Peter, in his uh, letter, says of Christians, those who follow Christ... You are priests, a royal priesthood. You are the mediators. You show the world what God looks like. And there's one thing that stands in the way of us being able to show the world what God looks like, and that is sin. It's a distraction. It's an idol. It's something that comes before what we were created to do. We look at sin as shameful, as you did something wrong, but all sin is is simply not living up to what God has intended for you to be like. You were intended to show Him. You were intended to be His representative, His priest. People were supposed to look at the image of God in all of our hearts and say, that's what God looks like. And the thing that stands in the way of that is sin. And now you have Jesus saying to His disciples... You're going to go out and you're going to tell people that their sins are forgiven. This is the newness of creation. Your sins are forgiven. So this thing that stood in your way of being truly who you were created to be is now gone. Sins are taken care of because of the resurrection we have forgiveness of those sins that has separated us from the way we were that from the way we were supposed to live it's a heavy job description but the job for us is to show the world what god looks like and because of the resurrection forgiveness and the resurrection are not these strange things that just might happen one day but then they are but instead they are telltale signs that Christ is up to something new in our world. And he's up to something new and he gets and wants to use you, us, to do it. This is the now what question. Easter happened. Hooray, let's hunt eggs. Let's have ham or whatever you have on Easter. My family did ham. I didn't like ham. But this, it's not just a day that happened. But it's a new creation that keeps happening. It's a new way to be human. It's a new way to live. You have a peace because of the resurrection. You have forgiveness because of the resurrection. Resurrection and forgiveness belong together in the same sentence. Both are a direct result of the victory that had happened on the cross. Resurrection tells us that death is defeated. The act of forgiveness tells us that sin has been defeated. And for the longest time, I feel that we as a church, not just us here, but the church everywhere has been walking around like we're the ones who have been defeated. 
We're the ones with the new life. We shouldn't live like we lost. We won. Hooray. Let's throw a parade like the Sounders did last year. We won. The forgiveness is here. New life is upon us. And when we forgive, when I forgive you, when you forgive me, that allows resurrection to keep happening because the broken relationship that we had between each other is now gone and there's new life there. And this is what our job is all about. Today, many of us are trapped like the disciples were in this locked room, deadbolted, chained, however many locks you have. And inside that room, you are trapped in there because you refuse to forgive someone. A person because of what they said an organization because of how they've betrayed you. That door is locked and there's no forgiveness getting in. And one of those people that you refuse to forgive might just be you. The door is locked on our hearts. And when the door is locked, there's no new life coming in and there's no new life going out. But Jesus doesn't care about door locks. He doesn't knock. He comes right in and says, I have the forgiveness you're looking for. We have the ability to be new. And it comes in and says, do you want it? Do you want this new peace? Do you want this resurrection life to be yours and to be yours not just today, but every day? We're creating something new. And if you look back into John's passage, one of the first things he says in chapter 20 is it's the first day of the new week. Jesus was born, or Jesus rose again. The first day of the new week is here. Forgiveness stands in your midst. The ability to live again is standing in the midst. And all you have to do is take it and have new life. There's a story. uh, I'll read it. it. It was in the newspaper a while ago. It's from June 2015. Uh, It's a story of forgiveness. A troubled man named Dylan Roof walked into an African-American church in Charleston, California, South Carolina, and he took the lives of nine people. We remember this story? Uh, Two days later, as the nation simmered with outrage and disbelief, the families of those murdered by Roof were were allowed, in accordance with the law for bond hearings, to speak by closed circuit television to Roof. Television networks carried the feed to both rooms. The room where Ruth stood, nearly expressionless, flanked by police, and the room where his victims and relatives were gathered. One after another, they spoke words of forgiveness, even as their voices shook with grief and anger. Perhaps the boldest declaration of forgiveness came from Nadine Collier, daughter of slain member Ethel Lance. And she said these words, I forgive you. You took something precious away from me, she said, and I'll never get to talk to her ever again. But I forgive you, and I have mercy on your soul. You hurt me. You hurt a lot of people. And if God forgives you, I forgive you. That's resurrection right there. That's that's new life. That's releasing someone from our anger and our vengeance. This is the gospel, that we can be forgiven. 
And if we're forgiven, then we can look at someone who's wronged us. And I have no idea how, how difficult it was for this woman to say about her mother and look at her killer, at the killer, and say, I forgive you. Today, who needs to be forgiven for you? Who have you locked in your heart and you hold this grudge towards? Who needs to be forgiven? What conversation does it look like? Does it even look like a conversation? Or can you just say to yourself about them, I forgive them. I'm no longer going to hold them accountable to this. I forgive them and I wish them new life. When we do that, we unlock the doors of our lives and Jesus is able to make us new again. You have been forgiven. You have been given a new job. And your new job is to forgive other people. And we're equipped to do it. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that you just don't leave us hanging in upper rooms. That you actually give us marching orders. You give us something to do. We continue the work that you started. And God, may people say of us that we forgive and we love. And the reason why is that we have been forgiven and we are loved. This is the gospel. You can be made whole again. We can be forgiven. And we can join in with our calling as reflections of who you are. For you love the world so much that you gave your only son to die so that we might have life. And life that isn't hampered by grudges or hate, but a life that is defined by forgiveness and love. Thank you for making us new. Thank you for the new calling, which is an old calling, but thank you for giving us the ability to live it. In Jesus' name.